Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Tell from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Hartford is Stephen Melanowski. Stephen is Regional Director, Compliance, Investigation, and Policy for Trinity Health of New England. And today we're going to be talking about conflicts of interest, a challenge for healthcare and all other organizations as well. Stephen, first, thanks for taking the time away from your day to talk to us. Well, thanks for having me, Adam. My pleasure. Now, First, most every healthcare institution has, or actually most every organization has or really should have a conflict of interest policy. Is one policy enough, though, for the whole organization, or do there need to be multiple policies reflecting the risks of various positions? It's not uncommon to have one policy, uh, but it has to be a very broad and effective policy. Uh, so to, to your point, um, that one policy might not reflect the various positions and the risks associated with them. So. Uh, for example, a conflict of interest policy for a board member is going to look significantly different for a, an employee-level uh, conflict of interest policy, uh, and that's in both structure and procedure. Uh, the risks are greater with board members and senior leaders. Uh, you know, they have fiduciary duties, um, and, and most workforce employees don't. Uh, so a common structure is to have two policies. Uh, the policy for the board member and senior leaders, um, who you know, they, they have purchasing authority or potential influence. Um, those disclosures would have to go to the uh, board chair for approval, <clears throat> and the other policy would be for workforce members, and that would include employed medical staff. Um, those I've see, typically seen reviewed by uh, the compliance office and approved by the employee's managers. Um, the other part of this is the non-employed providers who might not be a part of those policies, um, but you can certainly circle it back to them uh, by making it part of the credentialing process. Uh, or even throwing a line in the medical staff bylaws or the code of conduct uh, to make sure it does, uh, uh, they do adhere to it as well. Yeah, and if you don't want to have any kind of gaps with people who are somehow immune from this policy, because that's really a prescription for disaster. Now, typically organizations have an annual conflict of interest disclosure. That's fine, but if someone has a conflict come up the day after they file their disclosure, that's not so fine. How can we best encourage ad hoc disclosures? Yeah, this is a very common occurrence. Um, and unfortunately, there's no real way to guarantee ad hoc disclosures. Um, I would say having a culture of compliance is definitely uh, helps to mitigate these risks. Um, and that starts from the top down and then from the bottom up. Uh, so, for example, I would include it in day one training. You know, it's a good opportunity to educate staff on what a conflict of interest is. Um, uh, and you could also use that opportunity to promote your contact information, the hotline, uh, so employees know, know who to call. And as long as they're calling somebody, that's exactly what you need. Um, staff, you know, they need to be encouraged to speak up if they have a question or concern. And whether that's to the compliance office or to their supervisor or HR, we know it's going to get to the right place. So just encouraging them to talk about it is, is uh, a good start. Uh, but it's not just on them, right? It's on their supervisors to recognize these types of conflicts and escalate them for review. Um, I'd also recommend a periodic organizational update about conflicts of interest. You know, a gentle reminder uh, so people are aware of the process um, and when to speak up and ask questions about that. Um, and if you somehow miss them with all of that, you can always consider a mandatory annual disclosure. Uh, it's kind of like uh, you do with the training. Um, that way you can't actually miss them. And I think throughout you need to let people know that, look, no one gets in trouble for disclosing a conflict of interest before it comes up. In fact, it's greatly appreciated by the organization. Now, in the article that you wrote for Compliance Today magazine about this topic, you advocate for something I, I frankly had never heard of before, a conflict of interest dictionary. Um, can you explain what that is and how it would be used? 
Adam, I'm glad you asked about this. It, it's not a common tool, um, but I, I'm happy that people are, are noticing it. So uh, it's a great document uh, that we use for improving efficiencies at Trinity Health in New England. Um, just a little background, there was a period of time where there were very few of us handling conflicts of interest, um, just like one or two of us, and they came in really fast. So we had like 200 come in in one day and we had to address them you know, in, in a, an appropriate time. Um, so at that time, it felt like we had no time for anything else. So we built a dictionary and basically that addresses the very common conflicts of interest. So somebody has a, a membership on an external board or they have a business ownership, whether that's clinical or real estate or otherwise. Um, if somebody's consulting or advising or moonlighting, um, you know, there are varying uh, conflicts of interest and varying risks based on their roles and their levels of leadership. Um, so we, we found about a dozen or so more common conflicts um, and we put it in a spreadsheet and then, you know, that was column A is what is a conflict? Column B is what else do I need to know? So we had to ask more questions as these came up and we sort of built it as, you know, we built the plane as we were flying it. Um, so one of the questions we would commonly ask is, does this person have, have purchasing authority? Um, if they own a business, can they refer to uh, patients to themselves? Um, are they in management? What's their role? If, you know, if so, what level? Because risks change at different levels um, of management. So a supervisor versus a director versus a VP. It's going to change the risk every time. So we added those risks into a third column um, just to sort of point out why this is a conflict. Uh, so we would say things like, you know, your hours spent at this conflict may interfere with the hours at our organization. Or you may receive royalties based on your purchasing authority. So they're essentially getting paid twice to use their own products. Um, and one of the bigger ones was, especially with moonlighting or, and uh, consulting, was that their performance at another company is often misconstrued as a performance on behalf of our organization. Um, so those were the risks that we included. And the last thing we did was we created standardized language um, in the last column, which most conflicts of interest that needed managing, uh, we would write out a management plan that would include these uh, standard language that would really lay out their expectations for this. You know, we, we will allow this conflict, but as long as you don't let it interfere with your hours, or as long as you don't use our resources for this. Uh, so now when a conflict comes in, we have this, this tool we can go to, and we have the questions we have to ask, um, and we can determine if it requires written management, and if it does, we have standardized language ready to roll out, and the whole process takes a few minutes. Well, that sounds like it's great on, on at least three levels. I mean, it, one, obviously, it increases efficiency, uh, Secondly, it ensures that you have consistency across all of these and, you know, you've got all the steps to find so you can both make sure you, when you have that consistency and be able to demonstrate it uh, externally if need be. Now, when there's a conflict uh, of interest identified either by someone self-reporting or discovering one, how should the risk be assessed? Risk assessment is always one of the hardest things um, and, uh, to do, and there's always a couple ways to do it. So when you risk assess a conflict, you're really looking at two factors, and that's likelihood and impact. So likelihood is going to refer to things like the probability or frequency that the conflict will happen. Uh, if the risk uh, of, uh, occurs, um, it, what is the likelihood it's going to actually happen? Um, and then impact is the severity or consequence or even cost of that risk. Uh, so, you know, we even though we have standardized language, we do have to approach every conflict of interest individually because there are always, always going to be some unique circumstances um, and very few of them are going to be like any other, other one that come in. Um, so I find it helpful to talk on a risk assessment with a team. You know, it, your assessment of likelihood and impact might not be as accurate as somebody else's. Um, so it's good to talk it through. And then 
Um, you know, talk about the things that are going to affect likelihood, like someone's role in an organization. So if you have a workforce employee, for example, uh, and she's a nurse who's moonlighting another hospital, that might not require management. Um, but if you have a nurse director moonlighting another hospital, it's going to raise that risk significantly because now you know they're going to be able to, uh, be able to share proprietary information, whether they know it or not. Um, likelihood can also be affected by benefits. So who benefits from this, the employee or the organization? And that's going to change uh, the risk as well. When you're looking at the impact of the complex risk, one of the biggest things you have to look at is, uh, is it going to be a policy violation or does it go against the code of conduct? Look at the reputational impact. You know, when, for example, um, if a manager is overseeing their significant other, if, if the significant other is reporting to them, that's going to affect the reputation. Uh, your employees are going to see it as a conflict and people who learn about it are going to see it as a reputational risk. Um, and of course, financial impact is one of the things to consider. Is it going to negatively impact your financial, your organization's finances? Um, so again, looking at the example of roles, moonlighting is, is good. It's fine for a workforce level employee, to, you know, to be a per diem moonlighting uh, employee at another organization. But what if you have a very specialized physician and they're moonlighting at a competing hospital in their specialty? It's kind of like they're taking money out of your pocket to do this or other work. Uh, that might not be something you have the risk tolerance for. Um, but once you're able to assess the uh, likelihood and impact, you know, we use a LIFER scale, one to five for each, um, and we stratify it. Uh, and then we determine if it's, you know, no risk, low risk, medium, high, or very high uh, based on those numbers. So it's easier to understand if those conflicts need management or if it's even manageable. And sometimes, of course, it isn't manageable. Now, yeah. what kind of management plan should be in place to handle the inevitable conflict of interest? And again, Adam, this is where we circle back to the conflict of interest dictionary. So for employees, you can create a management plan. Um, and really what we like to include is the background. What is the actual conflict that was disclosed? What else have we learned about it? Um, having that information, we check the conflict of interest dictionary. Um, we we'll see if there's standardized language that fits it or we tailor it to that. And then we write out the risks. So, you know, as they're signing something, you want to tell them why they're signing it. What are the risks to the organization? Uh, so they know why you want this memorialized in the signed document. And then the last part of it is to outline those expectations. Again, the, the standard language you can get from the dictionary, but you know, you're going to have to sort of tailor it based on the terms. Um, but we, it, it, the last part of it is the sign off because we want the person who disclosed the conflict to sign off on it. We want the supervisor to sign off on it so that you know, they're aware and they agree to it. And then compliance uh, would also sign off on that. Um, and we sometimes will include um, human resources, so it's in their file, or, or ask that the uh, medical staff office includes it in the provider's file if it's a um, physician. On the other hand, board disclosure is a bit different because they're all generally approved, at least uh, by our policy, by the chair. So from a timing perspective, it's not great to sort of inundate a, a board chair with dozens of conflict of interest management plans and doc, you know, different documents. Um, so you know, upon annual disclosure and ad hoc thereafter, um, we make it easier for them. We report, uh, make a report with the names, the conflicts, and the recommended board action. Go over that with legal and the board chair and see if there's any updates or changes. And an easier way to get them globally approved without involving so much paperwork. And certainly you don't want to overload the board on anything, let alone something that's going to be an ongoing issue. Well, Stephen, right. thank you for sharing these insights with us. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turltaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.